Well, hello, everybody, and welcome once again to a, a weekly edition of Under the Macroscope. My name is Matthew Pierce, and I'm in conversation with Skybound Capital's chief strategist based in the London office, Jabir Sardawala. Uh, our podcast available on Apple, Spotify, the Google podcast uh, app for Android. So uh, we do encourage you to download it so that uh, you get it on a regular basis, share it with friends. And thank you to all of you who've done that already and uh, are giving us wonderful feedback. Uh, we, we hope to keep the topics nice and relevant and fresh and interesting. And uh, we always do appreciate Jabir's views. So Jab, to, to kick off this week, uh, we're gonna go slightly in reverse to last week's podcast where Bitcoin uh, and uh, various pros and cons, and in fact, not only Bitcoin, but uh, cryptocurrencies in general were discussed between you and Ross Muller. Uh, it's a story that's developed in many ways in the last week since we last had the podcast and particularly around some some very public announcements by Tesla and MasterCard. And as always, you've looked beyond the big barking headlines and, and found that the devil is rather more in the detail. Yeah, um, well, thank you, Matt. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. You know, um, when I when I saw that headline about Tesla, um, you know, I had to I had to do a quick sanity check here to really figure out um, what was going on. And it's interesting. I mean, when you dig into the details of their statement, um, first of all, what do they say about buying cars with Bitcoin? Okay, given in mind, I'm, I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read out to you that specific statement. They say, we invested an aggregate of one and a half billion dollars in Bitcoin. Moreover, we expect to begin accepting uh, Bitcoin as a payment for our products in the near future, subject to applicable laws and initially on a limited basis. Now, that's pretty vague. That's pretty vague. That's the first point to, uh, to make. By the way, that one and a half billion, that represents about currently 8% of their cash reserves. Um, and then when you dig deeper, it gets even more interesting. Um, they go on to say, they've done this, and I quote, to further diversify and maximize returns on our cash that's not required to maintain adequate operating liquidity. Okay, so basically this is the unencumbered portion of their cash which they're essentially using to speculate with. So it's almost like that seems to be their priority right now. Um, because perhaps like so many organizations, they are noticing that they're earning absolutely next to nothing on their cash reserves. You know, US corporates have nearly $3 trillion worth of cash on their balance sheet. You know, it's a staggering sum, all earning you know, close to zero. So people are now looking at different ways. So. I think from the perspective of corporate treasurers, you're not going to see anybody rush in anytime soon to suddenly start doing uh, and modifying their cash management policies around cryptos, specifically Bitcoin, because it's just way too volatile. They need stability. For them, it's all about, you know, we'll accept some return as opposed to no return or even a loss. And liquidity and all of that is absolutely vital to them. Um, so if you then home in on MasterCard, because that was the one that really stunned me when I heard that, you know, and this is, it's almost sort of Donald Trump-esque uh, fake news type headline, headline grabbing stuff. 
when I saw that uh, news about MasterCard, I, I dug deeper into what the statement was all about. And again, I'm going to quote to you. It says, it's planning to support cryptos on its network, but only those that comply with requirements such as stability, privacy, and compliance around money laundering rules. Now, that's a very formidable statement. This is not new territory. There is context to this statement. And you can't, what it says is that you can't be decentralized and unregulated. You can't have the best of both worlds. Case in point, Facebook. If you remember, they launched their Libra currency. It's now rebranded to DM. And what they tried to do there was they wanted to be open and decentralized, just like Bitcoin. But at the same time, they wanted to be fully compliant with regulations governing financial networks. I'm sorry, but you can't have the best of both worlds. And consequently, MasterCard pulled out. So there is important context here, which the headlines don't portray. It's really important to understand this. So, you know, they haven't spelt out which cryptos they would accept. But I don't think it's going to be Bitcoin. In fact, I don't think it's going to be many of the four and a half thousand or so that are on the list. Um, rumor, uh, the rumor mill is suggesting it might be USDC. That's the US dollar coin. Why? Because their parent company is Circle. And Circle is uh, totally willing to uh, comply with regulations. So you know, that's a possibility. It's certainly a, a story that is going to evolve. And as you'd expect, it, it sparks a, a whole lot of debate, which is can actually be quite unhelpful and divisive because people are very sort of either protagonist or antagonist on this topic. Uh, as with many things in our world at the moment, there, there seems to be very little middle ground. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. There's, there, there is indeed very little middle ground. And when I look at this whole story around cryptos, I think what it has done, and the MasterCard story especially, is that they went on to say that we will fully support anything, the, uh, the, the move to a digital currency, provided it is regulated and they will work with governments. This is the key thing. They are a fundamental platform here. And it was interesting that Visa also then uh, came out, I think around about the same time with a statement, saying that you know if, this can, if we can get proper uh, rules around this whole thing, then they are willing to have it on their platform as well. So essentially, if we're gonna pay tribute to cryptos for one thing, it is this, that they have set the catalyst, they are the catalyst towards a move to a regulated digital currency world. But right now what's happening is that you've got a divide between the more tech driven type characters who have this ability with their huge financial clout to move markets and you have the others who are sitting on the sidelines saying, we're not going to touch that because we've really got to uh, pay attention to volatility and stability and so on. Well, it's a fascinating topic and it will evolve at a pace. And uh, I, I suspect for the next few weeks, we might be touching on this topic. Uh, before we wrap up this week, uh, part of your week in review that, that you send out on, on email uh, every Sunday evening or Monday, we've picked a, a couple of topics uh, and, and uh, one that is very close to you. As, as long as I've known you, you've kept an a very beady eye on inflation. Mm -hmm. and you've got your views on global inflation, but specifically this week, you have some concerns around 
emerging market inflation and, and specifically food inflation. That's, that's absolutely correct. You know, and this is something I, I feel that the world has forgotten just how much more important food inflation is as the inflation basket in the world of EM versus the world of DM. So for instance, to give you an example, food inflation is approximately 50% of emerging market inflation, 50%. You know, and you have to remember the staples like rice, absolutely vital, uh, oil, cooking oil. Um, you contrast that with um, the world of developed markets, it's broadly between 10 and 15%. In the US, it's 10%. And you see it, it's very visible. I mean, more and more people I talk to, you know, you see um, shopping baskets getting smaller and smaller, you know, whether you're buying chocolate or cereal or anything like that. Um, the plate that you, plate of food that you get, you know, when you, if you're in a restaurant, for instance, when they were last open, um, it just feels smaller. You know, that is, that is subtle inflation. There comes a point where it can't get much smaller. Um, if you look at general inflation in the world of emerging markets, um, it's currently running, the core is currently running at around 3%. Um, energy is running at a negative 4%. Food is running at over 5 So if it wasn't for energy, which, by the way, has now really started to climb again, you know, you're going to see uh, a, a significantly higher gain in inflation. Now, what is, what is inflation a function of? Well, first of all, it's currency, it's the exchange rate. And what we've had until recently is a decline in uh, EM currencies versus the dollar. Now that seems to have, you know, well, it is reversing. The question really is how much further it will go. Um, I dispute that uh, the dollar will continue to weaken for a, protract a protracted period of time. I don't think that's gonna happen. I think there's room for further weakness, but not much more. Um, and also EM, uh, a lot of the EM world is dependent on exports. If their currencies get too strong, they're going to struggle. So that's, that's the first point. Second is that, you know, we've had a big surge in commodity prices. And to give you an example, in, in Latin America last year, food prices went up 14%. 14%. I mean, if you're trying to go out there just to do your shopping, you're suffering. Um, you know, specifically in areas like rice, for instance, a staple diet across the globe, you know, that was, that jumped as much as 76%. 76%. Soya oil jumped 100%. It doubled in price. So these are staples that form emerging market inflation, uh, food inflation baskets. So with, with that in mind, it just leaves me a bit concerned that unless there are mitigating factors that can bring it down, and I do appreciate that weather is, plays a big part in this, you know, um, you can't control that. Um, that's very much out of our means. But if you, you get a period of bad weather, that's only going to compound the problem. Um, and just one last thought. Um, just over 10 years ago, we had the Arab Spring. That was December 2010. And it lasted for two years. And it actually started in Tunisia. Uh, uh, we, a lot of people have come to think that it was all about Egypt. It wasn't. It spread to Egypt and a lot of the, uh, the Middle East. But it started in Tunisia because of the economic hardship that people were facing. And what some are saying was actually down to food. Because when you get to the point that you can't feed your family, then what do you do? 
and it led to that tragic situation where uh, a Tunisian gentleman ran out in the street, doused himself with petrol and set himself alight. Okay, and after that, there was a big uprising. Um, I'm not suggesting that we're, we're going to have that again, but you can see how these situations, these flare-ups and the dilemma that central banks have now, because here they are saying, okay, we're going to let inflation run. But at the same time, who, to who are they fiduciary trustees to? Is it the population or is it the markets? So, you know, it's, um, that's, that's my passing thought here. Well, as, as always, uh, topics that are uh, fascinating and in some senses deeply concerning, uh, but certainly things that need to have an eye kept on them uh, moving forward. I'd always enjoy hearing your macro view as we do on Under the Macroscope every week. Uh, Jabir does his week in review, uh, a, a wrap up of uh, what is influencing uh, markets and economies around the world. So uh, do go to our website, www.skyboundcapital.com. You can download uh, past podcasts and subscribe there as well to the Under the Macroscope podcast. So until next time, have a great week, everyone.